Welcome to another episode of Ordinary Old Catholic Me. Those of you who know me, my friends, or those who do listen to this podcast, know that I'm a big Star Trek fan. This despite the fact that religion is posited mostly in other forms than the Judeo-Christian one. I have another interest, and that is in a show that was made in the late 1960s, kind of a psychedelic show, as was the time, and it was called The Prisoner. There were only 17 episodes made. It was about a resigned spy who was kidnapped from his home in London and sent to a beautiful little town called The Village, His very apartment is reconstructed. It's a beautiful town. It's about as wonderful as any place you might want to retire to. But he can't leave it. And the powers that be, whoever they might be, exert all sorts of energy, manipulation, mostly psychological methods, to try to get this man who has no name. Nobody there has a name. Everybody has a number. His number is six and they spend all their time, these powers, to try to get him to divulge why he resigned. He is uncompromising, this former spy, and he resists every effort to limit his freedom. And he says, I will not be pushed, filed, stamped, indexed, briefed, debriefed, or numbered. My life is my own. He's a man of very strong will. He declines to compromise. He defaults always, and with great bravery, one might say, but at great cost, to his private conscience. Formed, we are not sure how or why, because his religious disposition is never demonstrated, but always maintaining his strength of will. Does he win in the end? Well, if you ever have watched the show, you find out that it appears the battle number six has had was ultimately with himself. There have been endless debates about that, and that's just one interpretation. Meanwhile, the actor who played him, the late Patrick McGowan, was known in his public and personal life to be rather similarly uncompromising about his roles and about what anyone was to know about him or his thoughts. He was, at least nominally, a Roman Catholic. Some people say he was always strictly so, Other people say they don't know, and frankly, it's open to interpretation as well. But he, too, was a man of strong will. As I was seeking, quote, information, as perhaps the village number two did in the series, about the Prisoner series, I found that McGowan had had an early role in a staged TV version of an Henrik Ibsen verse play called Brand, that's B-R-A-N-D, in like 1959. I found that it had been recorded and I began to watch it because I read it was about an uncompromising priest who is seeking to do the will of God. He is referred to as a priest in the story. I have alas read no Ibsen, though he's famous for plays like Hedda Gabler and A Doll's House, but seeing that this character was a priest, I thought I'd see what it was about. Now, then I found out that the character marries and has a child, so he's not at least a Catholic priest. 
I found out that some Lutheran pastors in the area of Norway and Denmark and such places were called priests in those areas, though it was not common, and I had never heard it here in the States. But I was hooked because this character, this minister, has as his raison d'etre three words related to his service of God and his concomitant expectations, demands literally of others, that is, all or nothing. The Lord demands. The disciple gives up his safe, regular life, acts without question on God's plan for him, without compromise, this is according to Brand. Any reservation negates the service to God. Well, one thing I realized as I started to watch McGowan was that I really first needed to read the actual play before I ventured into watching its exhibition from 1959, which is very stark, black and white, which is good because it works with the set and is very minimal. McGowan's acting is spectacular, but it's so intense that I couldn't really focus on his words. I needed to read it. I had some immediate thoughts and questions. There was the usual big question of how one determines what God is asking in order to then act Another, it's one thing to be uncompromising for yourself and your service to God, but how does that work here when the man ends up with a family? Is an uncompromising service to God proof of love of God? Does not a lack of compromise mean that feeling which God has given us, it's a gift to us, cannot enter into things and that there can be no mitigation how does it merge or affect one's love of another, if one has another? Does the concept of all or nothing differ from another concept I have read about and heard about over the years, the Teresa of Avila or John of the Cross, all and nothing, or does it? I like to read things first, as I said, and get oriented. What was this character all about, and what did it have to do with me or you or anyone in real life if it did? What, if anything, does the character Brand teach me or any of us about our lives as religious people living in a secular world? Right now, how many times have we seen comments upon it, the Catholic Church teaching very hard and arguably very uncompromising things about what is good and right, about family, about sex, about when and in what fashion it is to be had, about money, about children, about the praise of God himself. And yet, the reality that we see that is being pressed upon us is something much more, let's say, flexible. A little of this, a little of that, and it's all very good. In fact, there is remonstration about being, quote, too rigid, which traditional Catholics, meaning those in this context who favor the Tridentine Mass and are critical of the prelates, for example, and they see this too rigid as being aimed at them. Let's be transparent. If you, even us Novus Ordo folk, or I, are living in accord with all the precepts of the faith, then we, you, I, am living a very difficult, somewhat, arguably uncompromising life as it relates to the world that we're in. You don't have to be called a, quote, traditional Catholic, a fraternity of St. Peter person or an Eastern Rite Catholic to be considered rigid in today's polite Catholic 
or secular society. You can be, as I said, an attendee at what the traditionalist sees as a horrible Novus Ordo Mass and be considered pretty uncompromising if you are actually trying to adhere to the dogma and doctrines of the Church, recognizing, of course, that you often fail, and that's the beauty of confession. You have that to go to God and seek forgiveness. Words are so nifty, but they are also so confusing. Even here, as I mention confession, I see how one can change one's very action in relying on the convenience of meaning. Today, since Vatican II, we use the word reconciliation, which sounds like it means something more mutual. And well, actually, that word suggests the very compromise that a character like Brand, I promise I'll get back to him, finds abhorrent and which negates the true following of God. Parenthetically, going back to the prisoner, when he is uncompromising, what he's called by the leaders of the village is, quote, unmutual. He won't compromise. He will not be mutual. He will not reconcile with them in the way that they want. So, going back to the sacrament of reconciliation, the word reconciliation, according to my Google perusal, and I found something from Oxford Languages, is restoration of friendly relations, or making one's views or beliefs compatible with another's. So you go, arguably, to the sacrament of reconciliation, and your relationship with God is restored, and isn't that a kind of mediation? No. But confession, the sacrament of confession, of penance, suggests something where I approach God without excuse, admit to something sinful I have done, and ask God's forgiveness. It seems less about mediation, about a mutuality in, in the traditional sense. Yes, I suppose it restores the relationship, and reconciliation is clearly a key part of it, but it's not the whole. So how this religious man defines all or nothing, doing the will of God, really just caught me in a big way in terms of my own life and the world in which I am living. I'm guessing I'm not alone, but we have two problems. We've always had two problems. We probably have more. Defining what it is to do the will of God and then having even the slightest idea of whether we are doing that which itself seems incredibly amorphous. And so, with all these crashing images and thoughts in my mind, I ordered the play from Amazon and found the exact translation upon which the TV production of Brand was based by Michael Meyer, translated from the original Norwegian. Ibsen was Norwegian. This very version had a foreword by another famous writer, the British poet W.H. Auden. I read the play, and then I watched the TV production in full. Here's the thing. I didn't like Brand. I'm going to get back to that at some point. Don't get me wrong. The acting was superb. McGowan was born to play that role. But Brand ties himself and everyone else into knots. And life there in this play, in this small village where there's poverty and hunger, well, life is hard enough. And it's hard enough now when we have plenty. Brand seems, well, 
interestingly, a prisoner of himself or his interpretation of what service to God looks like. It occurs to me that when McGowan created his late 1960s television show, that he was not, in effect, perhaps intending to present the same character for the 20th century and beyond as Brand. What does this all-or-nothing get you, and does it serve God, or does it serve the self, perhaps even unintentionally? On the other hand, it seems to me that we live, I live, in a world where compromise is the expected order of things, and even God is expected to compromise, and that, too, is for us intolerable because it leaves us unmoored. This episode of the podcast is definitely going to turn out to be a two-parter. I say that because, one, I'm already at 13 minutes and I've got plenty more to go for today's episode, and also because of all the thoughts that have flooded into my head, most of it related to stuff that's probably beyond my actual education, as good as it was, you know, college and philosophy and theology and all of that, but long ago and far away, and certainly not that of of theologians or priests, but I've been kind of caught in a net and stuff is just flying around, if that makes any sense. So as I look at one thing, something else pops up and sort of flies into the soup that I've got to deal with. For example, I read that Ibsen was looking a bit, when he wrote Brand, to the Christian philosopher Kierkegaard when he wrote Brand. Kierkegaard wrote something called, quote, either or, which is a debate of sorts about aesthetics, say maybe feeling the personal, the physical experience, versus ethics for a good moral life. I haven't read that, and I'm not going to read it in order to prepare for this episode. I barely got through Brand. <laughs> I may have to read it down the road, no doubt about it. But I did read another one by Kierkegaard, which also supposedly Ibsen was looking to, called fear and trembling, which focuses on Abraham taking his son Isaac out to sacrifice him because God told him to do so. And how, if I can remember, I read it probably when I was in my 20s or early 30s, how one can look at that story. And it's rather jarring that you can interpret the act of Abraham as something, I don't know, more than or less than really acting on the will of God. And that's frightening because it goes to our own issues in trying to determine these things. And that was a masterful and difficult and earth-shaking act that God asked of Abraham. It seems pretty clear that Abraham would have, in fact, killed his own son if God's angel did not stay his hand. I remember one aspect, I think I remember one aspect of the book, which was the concern or the idea that what God was actually asking Abraham to do, to commit murder, that itself was a horrible thing, unethical, if you will, and that worse, or not worse, I don't know if it's what's worse, that Abraham was more than willing to do that. Talk about uncompromising. It occurred to me that in order to talk about Brand in more detail down the road, maybe in our next episode, not maybe, in our next episode, that you should know what the play is about. So I'm going to tell you the story, and then next week we'll talk some more about how the will of God plays out here and other things that play out here. And I 
probably do want to talk about a comparison, which I do have to spend some time looking at. And again, remember, I, I, I always want to disclaim here, I do these things far more quickly than I should because I get an idea, something really attracts me, and I do this sort of rush of looking at things and then try to sort it out to present my thoughts to you. If it's something I actually read, I attribute it to what I read, but then I talk about my thoughts about it all. And clearly, it's inadequate. I mean, this is a half-hour show among many shows out there, but it sort of goes to the whole purpose of this show. Is I'm an ordinary Catholic struggling with all this stuff. That was my phone. I'm not going to delete that. So what's the story? It takes place in Norway, which, as I said, is where Ibsen was from. This is a cold place. The setting is dark, for the most part, icy, windy. The people of the town, the town in which Brand was born, are struggling. They're poor. They're hungry. They are religious in a way, in a way that sort of is integrated into their ordinary lives. <laughs> that kind of makes me laugh as I say that because I call this ordinary old Catholic me. So our religion in some ways is integrated into our ordinary lives. They're content with the religion that they have. Who is this brand? A series of episodes tell us. He's first an itinerant preacher. He plans to pass through his former home, which he apparently has not seen for some time, and in fact has had a poor relationship with his mother, who still lives there, and he left her and became a priest. Everything about him is duty. When we meet him, he's traveling with a man, apparently guiding him toward his old town, and the man's son. It is a dangerous journey because of an oncoming storm. The man, the guide, is going that way, presumably to see his dying daughter, who will not live out the day. But the man becomes afraid and wants to turn back. Brand is unsympathetic in his puzzlement about this man's behavior. The man says he would give his house and his farm so that he could be there with his dying daughter so she could die in peace. But he will not give his life. He wants to turn back. Brand finds this intolerable and that this man, in his view, does not know God, because if he did know God, he would continue forward. The man and his son leave and do not continue on the road with Brand. Then Brand encounters a young man and a young woman. The man, as it turns out, was a schoolmate of Brand's and remembers Brand as always keeping to himself. Brand seems a bit proud of that, and he is, and he was, different. The two young people, Agnes and Ejnar, are happy, as they have been effectively frolicking, as young people do, somewhere where the mist and darkness is not, where the sun is warm, south of this dark mountain. South seems to suggest a safer place, where demands are fewer. Ejnar intends to marry Agnes when they return to the same town, through which Brand intends to pass. Ejnar is a painter. He wants to regale Brand with how good God has been to them and to their future. There is love and relationship and the promise of joy. Brand and the couple are going the same way, but with very different purpose. Brand says he's going to bury the God of which Ejnar spoke. Quote, the God of every dull and earthbound slave shall be shrouded and coffined for all to see and lowered into his grave. It is time you know he has been ailing for a thousand years. What does Ejnar wonder? as one might, as you and I would. What is this man talking about? For he seems so harsh. 
But his complaint is that the god Ajnar and most people worship is reached for in half measures, mixing a little sin with a little virtue, so that really there is nothing substantial there. I should mention, just in passing, that when Ibsen wrote this play, he was angry, not, as far as I can tell, about anything specifically religious, but the fact that his countrymen did not go to the aid of Denmark in a war between Germany and Denmark in the 19th century, and this play was in part his way of venting about the compromise of his own people. So Brand says at page 61 of the play in the version that I have, talking about the god of, of the people, he says, that's what he is, the god of our country, the people's god, a feeble dotard in his second childhood, you would reduce God's kingdom, a kingdom which should stretch from pole to pole to the confines of the church. You separate life from faith and doctrine. You do not want to live your faith. For that you need a God who will keep one eye shut. That God is getting feeble like the generation that worships him. Mine is a storm where yours is a gentle wind, inflexible where yours is death, all loving, not all doting, and he is young and strong like Hercules. His is the voice that spoke in thunder when he stood bright before Moses in the burning bush, a giant before the dwarf of dwarfs. In the valley of Gibeon he stayed the sun and worked miracles without number, and would work them still if people were not dead like you. Brand seems to think that he can address this sickness though he's just a man, so it's not clear to me that the way he talks about it, he could possibly do it. And somehow, you begin to feel, at least I did, that he's taking his place over God in thinking that he can heal the still extant sickness in mankind. But Agnes finds Brand compelling. Ajnar just wants to get away from him, and the couple go on their way into the town. Now Brand meets up with another woman who is like a local witch. Her name is Gerd. And it gets really symbolic here. She's chasing and trying to kill this wild hawk. The translator, Meyer, suggests that the hawk stands for emotion and love that she and Bran sees as causing people to compromise, or in the Bran's case, to compromise in following God. She wants to show him what she calls the Ice Church, part of the topography of the mountain, which, again, Meyer suggests, symbolizes the absence of love, the very coldness of Brand's heart in the pursuit of his uncompromising idea of God and God's precepts. And yet, Brand is afraid of the place. Now Brand finally gets to the town. Ajnar and Agnes are also there. A panicked, shouting woman comes looking for a priest. At first, the townspeople say there is no priest, but then Bran steps forward. Her family has been starving. She and her husband have three children. The father became mad and killed one of the children. The woman wants the priest to go and save his soul. Bran needs someone to go with him in the boat, but the weather on the sea is again stormy and dangerous. Bran asks some of the men to go, and they decline. The woman herself, despite her protestation of the great need, because I think also the, and I'm trying to remember now, the husband is suicidal, will not go with him. Bran even asks Ajnar, but he won't go. It's Agnes who goes with Bran into the storm to save the soul of another. The townspeople watch Bran go. Though they've been afraid, 
they see that this priest is brave and they believe that he is the kind of priest that they need. Brand and Agnes make it to the home of the man and he is tended to spiritually before he dies. As the weather clears, some of the townspeople join them in bringing food for the remaining family. Brand is not impressed. He says, quote, If you give all you have, but not your life, you give nothing. Brand literally believes that he has taken on the salvation of men. But they still want him to stay on and be their priest. Brand has the idea that his job is to go out into the world on his mission. He tells them that his calling is his life. And they, very smartly, turn his very words on him. If you give all, but not your life, you give nothing. Now, Brand's mother is still alive. She's living in that town, as I said. She has heard about his deeds in crossing the fjord and the dangers he has faced. She warns him to take care of his life and to pass on his life to his children, the ones that she wants him to have. She talks of his monetary inheritance that he can pass on to those children. She's very attached to her money and possessions. Clearly, their relationship is fraught with strain. He remembers that when his father died, while he was literally laid out, she went and took things, material things of his, from every space near him and about him for herself. But despite her, he agrees that he will come to her on her deathbed, reminding her that she is old, but on the condition that she renounces everything in repentance, but it has to be everything or he will not come. Brand concludes as he returns to Agnes that his duty is to the town and he decides not to go on his worldwide mission. This is what he says in part, quote, I thought I knew the way to cure a man's sickness, but I was wrong. I see it now. It is not by spectacular achievements that man can be transformed, but by will. It is man's will that acquits or condemns him. So these are places that I see contradictions that I guess I'll talk about next week because we're now at 26 minutes. And that is, I agree in a way, and I think we all can agree that it's not spectacular achievements that necessarily transform oneself or another person. But I disagree that it's by will, his own will, man's will, because... It seems, for example, the little flower talked about the little way, but hers was a way of abandonment, not just to God, but of her own will. So anyway, that is an example of the kind of stuff I like talking about here. I hope you like it too. I don't know. This week I'm really excited about what I've read. I don't know what this is about. Anyway, as Bran looks to the village to which he has now committed himself, he says, you men who wander dully in this damp hill-locked valley which is my home, let us see if we can become tablets on which God can write. Well, Agnes has become attached to Brand and his call. Ajnar, the man whom she was supposed to marry, protests, but she decides that it is with Brand that she will cast her lot. Brand warns her that he requires all or nothing. There can be no forgiveness for failure. Her very death may be needed at some point. Ajnar begs her not to go with Brand. She decides for Brand and his way. Three years later, Agnes and Brand live in the cold climes. They have a son, Ulf, who is fragile of health. They are afraid that he might die. Brand's wife has stood by him. She clearly loves him. He says that she has given him light and peace in his work. He even seems to feel love. 
but she says that his love is hard. Brand says he does not want what the world calls love. He says, quote, I know God's love, which is neither weak nor mild. It is hard unto the terror of death. Its caress is a scourge. What did God reply in the olive grove when his son lay in agony and cried and prayed, Take this cup from me? Did he take the cup of pain from his lips? No, child, he had to drink it to the dregs. End quote. A side note on how I took not exactly umbrage, but objection to this statement. The way this is translated, perhaps, it sounds a bit Arian, as if Jesus, the Son, is only a creature and that God the Father ignored him. In fact, Jesus was God, the utterance of the Father. The love of the Father and of the Son for the redemption of the world is the reason that the cup could not be taken from Jesus and his human nature, which God had taken on. The doctor comes to remonstrate with the couple for staying in the cold home with nary a comfort. He also tells Brand that his mother is in fact dying. The mother has sent for the doctor, and not for the son, the priest, yet. But shortly after, she does call for him, and says that she will give him half her goods for the sacrament. He declines to go to her. The man who brings the news notes again, as everyone seems to, how hard Brand is. The doctor believes that comfort is what Brand's mother needs. Brand remains steadfast in his view, quote, yes, they always comfort themselves with that illusion, a psalm and a few tears just before the end, and all will be forgiven. Of course, they know their old God. They know he is always ready to be bargained with, end quote. Another man comes by and says that his mother says she will give nine-tenths of her wealth. Agnes loves Brand, but when she sees his rejection of his mother, she is frightened by his answer. The doctor feels that Brand wants to bring back a dead age, the one with Jehovah 5,000 years before, but he insists that every generation must make its own pact with God. That kind of struck me too, because one could argue that that's what we're doing in this modern society, that we're making a pact with God, that he should go into the cave or into the closet and not bother us. The commandment, however, that the doctor suggests is, be humane. Agnes wants to leave and take her son away for his health. She nearly convinces Brand, but the doctor turns Brand's words on him, that he is merciless toward his flock, but lenient on himself should he go, though he at the same time recommends it. The people still like Brand and feel that he has been a good influence on them thus far. So, despite the danger to his child and the fear of his wife, he stays, and she stays with him. She's greatly grieved, but she loves Brand and remains obedient to his calling, which has become hers. Well, of course, their child dies. One day, she is lovingly caressing the clothing that was her child's, and a poor woman comes to their door looking for help, including clothing for her own child. Agnes resists, but ultimately, at Brand's push, she gives every item of clothing to the woman. She is pained, but she claims an ironic freedom. One does not have a happy sense of her freedom. She would like to go back, reclaim something of her own child's. She has seen God face to face in following the way of all or nothing, but it has broken her. She goes to sleep. She dies. Now Brand is alone. He builds a new, bigger church, one he thinks the people's souls will grow into. He wants to help to save every individual of his congregation. 
The provost of the town suggests that this focus on the individual soul is not for the benefit of the town or of the state. Brand, he feels, is being asked to compromise his values. Ishnar, who has been gone now for some time, returns. He has become a man of faith, a missionary. But somehow, when Brand seeks solace from him, thinking that this man, now of God, will understand him, he finds that Ishnar has his own version of God and believes Agnes and Brand are the ones damned. Brand suddenly comes to believe that building a larger church was nothing more than another compromise and becomes obsessed with that ice church the witch had shown him long ago. He wants to take the people of the town. They'll be like the Israelites in the desert, only in this ice palace. They will fight, climbing to the Lord. But like the Israelites, they begin to mutter. Their feet hurt. They are thirsty. They don't want to do what Brand urges, that they win victory, because, quite frankly, the victory, Brand tells them, is a crown of thorns. The people are not happy, and Brand is defeated. The people know that someone died to save their souls, but... Their view is that nothing is required of them. They're so angry that they try to stone him. Bren goes upward toward the ice church by himself and meets who, what, his wife? He's fantasizing or dreaming or delusional. He does not know. The figure tells him that he must reject now, finally, his all-or-nothing position. He's beaten. He's bloody. He has become a Christ figure. It has cost him everything. The figure becomes the witch Gerd, and she is again chasing the hawk, whom Brand denominates the spirit of compromise. Brand denies any comparison with Christ and says that he is the meanest thing crawling on the earth. To the end, he is conflicted. As he approaches the antithesis of the hawk, the ice church, where there is absence of compromise and arguably love, he's afraid. He wishes he could go back and find light and sun, he suddenly thinks that Jesus has passed him by, but never has come close to him. As the witch, Gerd, chases the hawk with a rifle, one could say that their principles are somewhat in accord, and yet it is Brand who is fearful. She shoots, and she unleashes an avalanche. Brand asks no one in particular, quote, Must each man die to atone for human sin? And then, as the avalanche rushes, he yells to God, Answer me, God, in the moment of death. If not by will, how can man be redeemed? The last thing he hears is a voice, confusing voice from my point of view is, quote, because you can interpret it a million different ways. He is the God of love. As I said, I ended reading the play and watching the TV version of it from 1959 with the sense that I did not like this brand and his all-or-nothing drive that so disrupted, even damaged the people around him and he himself. And for this ordinary Catholic, his interpretations seem to have a lot of questionable theological logic. As I said, I'm not sure whose will Brand is pursuing in this play, his or God's. He seems to lay the work of salvation on himself rather than in loving cooperation with God. That is, following God who transforms sacrifice, rather than using it as some kind of bat against the people around him. On the other hand, much of what Brand says is true about the society's way of responding to God. Here is what W.H. Auden said in the foreword. I can't get away from it, and it's part of what I want to talk about next time. For those who might want to pick up this little book and read it, 
the forward that I'm referring to, and the quote is at page 40 from Auden. Whatever defects as a human being Brand may seem to us to have, much of what he says is unpalatable but salutary truth. Conventional Christianity is pretty much the same today as it was in the middle of the 19th century. Uh, side is that uh, Auden is talking in the 20th century. We still need to be constantly reminded that God's love and the mixture of sex, sentimentality, and mutual backscratching which most human beings think of when they use the word love have nothing in common. We may call ourselves Christians, but our natural impulse on encountering the real Christ is to crucify him because we find his love intolerable. So one of the interpretations you can make of Brand is that he is, in fact, a Christ figure and that his demands of people in many ways are not unlike the demands that Christianity makes and that people can't stand it, so they destroy that. On the other hand, Brand has some issues in how he presents God's message to the people and to himself and to those around him. In many ways, both the people of the village and Brand are doing the extremes of the same thing. They are imposing their respective wills on God and on each other and not listening, not really listening to and following God's will. The people compromise and bargain with God. Brand exerts his will and calls it God's. Some of it might be, but it's hard to tell, as it is always hard for us to discern whether we are, in fact, doing God's will. And is Brand's way being prideful? Sure seems that way, and yet he's completely right about the failures of faith he observes in his congregation. So, next week, more on Brand, and whose will we are or are not doing, and where love lies in all of it. Well, that was exhaustingly enjoyable, at least for me. I hope that is less exhaustingly enjoyable for you if you're listening to it. So next week, a little bit more on brand, the will of God, and all the big issues that we cannot possibly solve in any length of a program, but something to think about. Have a good week.